We are in part 16 today of the Discovering the Kingdom series, and I wanted to begin with a couple of thoughts that are going to draw our attention to the fill-in-the-blank that was given to you on the way in, in your bulletin, all right? But I got a couple of thoughts for you. There's a difference between being self-focused and being self-centered. Now, it's just a difference of degree, not kind, and I don't think either one of them is healthy. So what I would like to do this morning is to lay a vision for being God-focused and other, excuse me, God-centered and others-focused, amen? God-centered and others-focused. And I want to tell you why. If we live a life that is either self-centered or self-focused, we will not survive. And you say, ah, contraire, pastor, because you're French. <laughs> pastor, I've actually been selfish for years, and I'm doing just fine. Thank you. I would disagree. I would suggest to you that what God intends for your life to hold is being held back because your world is too small. Why must we be centered on God? Because we do not contain the source of life within ourselves. A self-centered life will shrink our world and lead us into dysfunction. It is for that reason alone we need to be God-centered. With his abundant life pouring down into us and through us that expands our world and brings health in from the outside. Why must we be others focused? Because a focus on ourselves only reveals more and more flaws that leads us to greater insecurity and doubt and because our own thoughts can't reach Outside our experience, a self-focused life is not just unfulfilling, it is ultimately depressing. For these reasons, we must lift up our eyes off of ourselves and keep them on other people. We make more sense to ourselves when we are in the practice of serving and loving other people. Our gifts make more sense. Our abundance makes more sense. Our doubts come into perspective, and health pours in. At the conference recently, I found myself being very critical. And I was critical of other people, whether it be speakers or leaders. And I was critical because I was having a bad day. And I have a great relationship with the Lord, so when I share this with you, I'm not looking for sympathy because quite frankly, the Lord has given me all I need for life and godliness, but I felt like the Lord was like, hey kiddo, how you doing today? And I'm like, I'm having a bad day. And he was like, yeah, I noticed that. Was it necessary to kick the neighbor's child? <laughs> I just felt busted, you understand what I'm talking about? Like going, yeah, I know your life's not easy right now, but does that mean you get to be a jerk in your heart towards other people? No, right? But it was interesting because as long as I was still in my head, I was having all kinds of weird like battles with myself. Half the time I was justifying myself. Half the time I was assassinating myself. And I was just all kind of up in my head. 
So what I found myself doing, because I know the power of community, is I started talking in little portions with my staff and all my friends around me. And I was like, man, I don't like how I'm acting today. Oh, I don't really like, and I was trying to get it outside my head. And it was interesting because when they would interact with it, things started to normalize. And I was able to work on pieces of me that were distasteful without collapsing in insecurity. You understand what I'm talking about? Because sometimes we don't look inside and work on ourselves. Because once we look down and find something ugly, we're so horrified that our self-defense mechanisms rise up and we don't do anything about it. We just say, I'm yucky and run away. But when we are in community, when we have our eyes up, when we're talking with each other, then all of a sudden when we voice a doubt and another person said, that's interesting, I've, I've struggled with that very same doubt, you all of a sudden have a little bit of traction to be able to say, well, maybe I should work on that. If they're not perfect and I'm not perfect, maybe we can do it together. And there's a beauty in that. But if we're only talking to ourselves, looking at ourselves, focused on ourselves, none of that's ever gonna happen, yeah? We need each other. So what would it practically look like to live a more God-centered and others-focused life. I'll give you some examples. Instead of seeing our paycheck as a means to solve our needs and wants, we would see it as a gift to steward for the kingdom of God. Maybe instead of seeing our home as a retreat away from people, we would see it as a safe place of hospitality. For people. Maybe instead of seeing our faults and weaknesses as something to hide due to embarrassment, they can be seen as opportunities to allow other people to emerge from the shadows. Let me pause there. At the conference, Pastor Mark Clark was speaking, and he is basically, he, he now works at Bayside. Uh, he came from Canada. He is basically me on a lot of caffeine right? Which I had some caffeine today, but I'm starting to come down. So you're, you're welcome. Um, he's kind of me unhinged, right? But what was interesting is that each time I've heard him speak, he mentions that he has Tourette's and OCD. That's a big part of his story. So when he's talking, you'll see facial twitches, you'll see ticks, you'll see all kinds of stuff. And that's a big part of his story, and he's very out loud about it. And so I was amening him significantly because he began to talk about the issue that when he talks about it, people emerge from the shadows and say, Pastor, when you mentioned that you had that OCD thing, I always thought I was just the freak. I always thought I'm the only one. But when I found out you had it, Pastor, I suddenly was able to walk out of the shadows. Do you guys realize that's why I'm so loud about my panic disorder historically, that I've been so loud about my faults and my weaknesses? Because what I don't want is anyone to remain in the shadows. If we did not, pastors like he and I, if we did not talk about those things, if we hid those things, if we shielded those things, if we tried to keep up a public face so everyone would think we were better than we are, people would remain in bondage. 
Maybe instead of seeing other people as avenues of advancement, we would see them as fellow travelers to minister to. Maybe instead of seeing as our calendar as something to fill, we would see it as something to intentionally plan margin into for divine appointments. Maybe instead of seeing our job as something to either endure or abuse, we could see it as a means of connection with other people and partnering with God to create. You guys tracking with me on all this stuff? It's, it's, a, it's a subtle shift, but it's a paradigm and a game changer where you begin to look at your life and it's not primarily about us. It's God-centered and others-focused. I think that's what we're called to. Now, the practical ramifications of living a God-centered, others-focused life is that it makes us lift our heads up and deal with some communal issues. And we find ourselves struggling immediately. Once you look at other people and you realize their brokenness, as a Christian, you try to figure out how you're supposed to engage with them. Historically, there has been a challenge in believers to say this, should I lead here in truth or love. That is a misnomer. They are the same pathway. How do I know that? Because if we're going to go to ultimate truth, you're going to find your way to God. God will always lead you to love. It is impossible to do truth without love. They are not in conflict with one another. They are a continuation of one another. If you have ever ended with saying, I'm just standing on the truth, and you didn't get to love, you have not reached the highest truth. You cut it too short. You see, if we're going to interact with broken people in a broken world, and we're going to be others-focused, we need to realize that we have to engage with them in a certain way. And that is what today's message is about. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Whether something is right or wrong is just the beginning. Whether something is right or wrong is only the beginning. So many of us, especially in the religious world, are so focused on being right. Because we talk about things in extremes. God Satan, good, bad, heaven, hell. No wonder our cultures are saturated with extremes, right? It's there, we never talk about the kind of hard hell. It's either eternal torment or eternal life. Like everything in our life is so polarized so when we try to engage with it as a broken human, not able to put it through the right filter of God, we end up being very extreme. But I'm going to suggest to you that we walk in a world of gray. And what you're going to find out from Paul is that the best way to love people on that journey is to ride the waves of nuance to actually morph to different environments, to see that loving someone in one area 
may look different than loving someone in another area. And we need to begin to ride those currents well if we're going to love well and be like Jesus every day. Amen? All right, nobody thought so. Now, once again, we're in the middle of a series, so what we've been doing is opening up 2,000-year-old mail. Church is battling with their pastor. The pastor's name is Paul. We refer to him as the Apostle Paul. And ultimately, they were arguing with him in theology at this point. They're actually talking to him what's right for a Christian life, and they're battling with the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote at least 13 letters of the New Testament. To us, it just sounds stupid. Why would you argue with the Apostle Paul? But once again, it was just their pastor. And they were like, yeah, I don't think you're seeing it right. So they were kind of challenged, and Paul was trying to bust them on a couple things of going, guys, you're not living like Jesus. What the heck are you doing? Well, one of the areas that he's been camped on for chapters 8, 9, and 10 has to do with pagan temples. So I want to bring you into that loop because we're going to talk about that. You see, in Paul's day in the first century in the Roman Empire, especially in Greece where the Corinthians were from, they had pagan temples everywhere. It was a part of the fabric of their society. They were very polytheistic. You would say, well, I'm into this god or I'm into this goddess. And it was kind of the cool thing to do. Some people were ardent worshipers. Some people were just like, nah, it's not really my thing, but whatever, you know, yeah, I go to church on Sundays, whatever. But what happened was, is that those that were into it, they would have events at the pagan temples. Now, a pagan temple was a place of worship to a false god or goddess. Now, let's be very clear here. And Paul lays it out. There is only one God, Yes. His name is Yahweh. He comes in the form of at least three persons. We know him as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right, that's the only God that exists. Everything else is not a God. It's a created being. So we know there are no other competing gods. And the Corinthians knew that full well because Paul taught them that. So when they would go into these temples, these people were praying to, worshiping, and honoring these false gods. And you go, why would you do that? There's nothing happening. No, stuff happened. Literally, they would do sacrifices to a god. For example, they wanted their job to go well, and then their job would actually start going better. Well, where was that power coming from? If it's not a real thing, why stuff happening? Well, that's because demons took advantage of the situation. And they thought, man, if I can get worshiped here, this is sweet. I will put on any costume I need to because I got you. You're gonna give stuff to me. You're gonna give power to me. You're going to give authority to me. So I'm taking advantage of this situation. So really, they were a bunch of temples that were honoring demonic spirits. So Paul laid down for the Corinthians. He's like, guys, we don't do that. They're like, man, Paul, you're so legalistic. It's not a real God, dude. I mean, we know our theology, right? Maybe you're a little messed up, but I'm telling you, we got freedom to go anywhere. It doesn't matter. I get it. They have parties there. I get it. They have business meetings there. We're just being like everybody else. We're Christians. We can do whatever we want. I said, no, 
You can't. Because the atmosphere changes meaning. And so he started talking to them of going, guys, you can't go there. And Because remember, this is how it goes. Somebody would want to honor a false god or goddess, let's say the goddess Artemis. A worshiper would come to Artemis' temple and say, hey, I wanna, I wanna throw a party and I wanna kick down some money in offering to Artemis. The priest or priestess would say, cool, you remember how this goes. All right, you're gonna throw a party, let's grab some meat. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a little tiny portion of that meat and we're going to burn it in honor of Artemis. That means literally put it on a little barbecue. It will burn up and as it wafts up, you are honoring her. Then we're gonna take another little portion and we're gonna make a little meal for her so that when you guys are eating, she gets a meal too and you guys can have a dinner together. And all the meat left over will either prepare it for your party and anything left over, we're gonna sell that in the marketplace to recoup some costs. Are you good with that? And they're like, absolutely, that's why I'm kicking down money. I want Artemis happy with me. I would love for here at the temple to be blessed. Good. They would have these parts. And that's why Paul was going, wait, wait, wait. Everything is designed here to honor someone other than God. Why is that okay with you guys? Like, that's weird, man. You're like, well, I don't know if I agree with you. Hmm. So they had two more questions, so he had to continue to answer their questions before he moved on, and the question was this. Okay, Paul, real quick, teacher, I have a question. Yes. Well, what if I'm at Whole Foods and I buy the meat and it's one of the demon meat things? Okay, I'll answer you. Okay, teacher, I have another question. Yes. What if I'm at a friend's house and they offer me lamb chops, but they're demon lamb chops? What do I do? He's like, all right, I'll answer you. And that's where we pick up the story. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. It begins with a quote from the Corinthians that they love this phrase. All things are lawful. He said, all right, I agree with you, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, they would say. He said, yep, but not all things build other people up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay, let's pause. Why in the world would they say all things are lawful? Because what that means is nothing's illegal. And they mean that for a Christian, there's no way to do something wrong. Why would they say that? Some of you grew up in some pretty legalistic backgrounds in religion. You're like, I thought everything was wrong. Wearing pants was wrong, right? Like, how could they believe that there's nothing that you could do wrong? Where did that come from? Well, they believed it because when Paul talked about what Jesus did on the cross, Paul's the guy that wrote the passage that says when Jesus Christ died on the cross... It said the code that stood against us, that is the law, the rules and regulations that define whether or not we are sinners, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. It means that when he fulfilled the law and completed it, when he paid our penalty for the sins of our lives, those all died with him and he came back to life and no one can double bill. If Jesus paid it, it's not on us. 
So if all of our sins are paid for, then we can't get busted for violating the law of God. And they're like, it's obvious. If there's no code against me, everything's legal. Do you understand their reasoning? And Paul said, all right, I'm gonna give you some of that because the answer is kinda. Yes, you are ultimately free, yes. When you go from death to life and give your life to Jesus, it says he makes you a new, a new creation. It says that he takes you from darkness to light. It says that he gives you the right to become a child of God. Once you are a child of God, you're always a child of God because children of God can't not be children of God. You may be a little rebel, you may be a little punk, you may be a little problem, but you are still God's kiddo. Does that make sense? And he always gets his kids home. So in that sense, that is true. But here's the deal. Just because Jesus paid for your sin doesn't mean your sin's not a big deal. You're hurting people. You're causing problems. So yeah, if you're only looking through your selfish lens, everything's lawful. But that doesn't mean everything's a good idea. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt other people. It doesn't mean that your choices aren't terrible. It doesn't mean that there aren't ramifications. You guys, yeah, everything may be lawful from a selfish point of view, but we're not here for us. We're here for God. And we're here for other people. So that means we gotta watch what we're doing. It means we gotta submit our lives to the Lord. It means we actually have to worry about our behavior. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul said, yeah. Christianity, you're on the back burner, other people are in front, let's move on. Then he answers their question about the meat market. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For as you know, Psalm 24, one says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All right, let's pause. Paul, yes, sir. Paul, I'm in Whole Foods. Why would you do that? It's too expensive. Because, Paul, all other grocery stores sell terrible items, and I will die if I eat them. So I'm at Whole Foods anyway, and I'm going down the aisle with a baby cart that's so unusual. And as I go with my baby cart, I come up on the meat section. And I was like, oh, I would love to have lamb. And so I grab the lamb and it dawns on me. Is it demon lamb? I don't know if this was originally sacrificed to a goddess or a god, and then they sold the extra stuff to me. And if I eat it, does that mean I'm gonna get demons? Paul said, nope, we're good. They're like, I don't know why. Okay, well, let me tell you why. Okay, there's a reason. I'm not just making this stuff up. Remember I told you the environment changes the meaning. Remember when I told you in a chapter ago, remember I told you in a message ago, I told you that if you're at home and you eat a bunch of bread and you eat a bunch of, excuse me, drink a bunch of wine, it's just bread and wine. But then you do the same thing in church and it's bing, communion. Okay, you remember how you can swim in a little pond or in your pool but the minute you do it at church, it's bing, baptism. 
Okay, so the same stuff, regular stuff, takes on a new meaning depending on the environment and the atmosphere. All right, cool. In the same way that works in the pagan temples. It may be regular meat, but once it gets into a pagan service, it changes the meaning. But once you separate from that environment, and now it's in the meat market, it's been separated out and the meaning drops away and we're fine. They're like, I don't know if I believe you. He said, okay, what have you always said every time you eat? What do you mean, what do I say? Well, you say grace, right? Like, man, your dad beat that into you, right? You always say grace, because here's what happens. For the Jews, it was a demand, an expectation that every meal they would give thanks to the Lord, and they would say this phrase, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And they got so legalistic about it, they believed that if you did not say grace over your meal, you were dishonoring God and you were disrespectful. If you ever wondered why we say grace, this is the reason, okay? But the verse that they would quote in Psalms said, everything in creation is God's. So if it's done with thanksgiving, it's creating a connective element with you and God, and it makes it holy and purifies it. That's the idea of grace, saying grace over your meal. He said, if we've said that all of our lives, then doesn't it mean that the meat, unless it is imported into a different meaning, is all good. So who cares? Do your shopping, roll with it, don't ask any questions, because then you're just messing with the meaning. Cool? All right. He said, as far as your second question, here we go, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers, meaning non-Christians, invites you to dinner and you wanna go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness to God, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Okay, here's what he said. All right, here's your question. Let's say you go to dinner at Maurice's house right? Maurice and his wife, Rita, are throwing a dinner party. And you're there, and your name is Rick, and you go to their house, and everyone has a nice little meal there, and they're going along, and they happen to have lamb on the table, and Maurice says, would you like a lamb chop? And you were like, hmm, yes, I would. But then Maurice says, it was offered to Artemis. Well, then it ruins it. Don't eat it. You're like, why? I thought it was the same meat. It is, but he just changed the atmosphere. Because now all of a sudden it's gonna mess with his head if he watches you eat it after what you know. Because then he might be going, well, I'm a worshiper of Artemis. Apparently it's cool that you are too. It starts messing with things. So at that point, don't, right? And this is where all Christians are like, I'm on a Daniel fast. Yeah, I'm sorry, I totally would love your lamb chops, but I only eat vegetables right now, so, uh, right? (laughs) Pass it on. Why would Maurice even say that? Because it's possible that as a non-Christian, he doesn't know how to interact with Christians very well, and he's like, yeah, I'm having over one of those Christians. Those people are weird. And I don't even know what to make them. Like, what do Christians eat, right? 
And they're like, just make a normal meal. And he's like, yeah, but I heard that some of them get all freaky about, you know, oh, that meat was from this place or that. Like, if I invite my neighbor Rick over and I give him something bad, he's going to freak out on me. And I don't want to mess up his world. Like, that's not very nice. So I'm just going to tell him. Does that make sense? Or there's another scenario that goes like this. Margaret, another neighbor, was invited as well. And you're going on in the meal, and they pass around, and then sure enough, Maurice says, hey, Rick, do you want some lamb chops? And you're like, I do. And Margaret leans over and goes, demon lamb. (laughs) You're like, dang it, Margaret. (laughs) The heck? Because now you realize Margaret said something because she's sensitive about it, going, that's totally bad. I used to be a part of that temple cult. That's freaky me. Don't eat that because now she's messed up about it. Now when you're eating it, you're tempting her to go against her conscience and have a problem. Let it go. Hmm. He's like, listen, if nobody says anything, we're clear. If somebody says something, it just changes the environment. Do you understand this whole business about we can just do, go through life, black and white, everything's either right, wrong, it's easy, I'm just gonna do this, put everybody in stereotypes, put everybody in categories. That's not loving. You adjust. You adjust, why? Because one environment you're gonna act like this and one environment you're gonna act like that, why? Because you're looking to what's best for the people you're with. It's not about your freedoms. I can do whatever I want but you shouldn't, right? Because here's the deal, we're talking about this weird demon meat stuff, but are we not still walking through gray areas every day? And what's right for one person, not right for another person. Let me talk about conscience for a second, because he mentioned that word, conscience. What's a conscience? Conscience is a self-set alarm of what's right and wrong. Notice I said self Said it could be accurate or inaccurate because you're creating your own alarm system in your head. Here's the problem with it you think it's always the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you've allowed the Holy Spirit to inform your conscience, and sometimes it's just baggage from your past, right? You got all these weird triggers, things freaked you out. So now your alarm's going off, going, I think that's evil. I think that's evil. Somebody else doesn't have your triggers from the past. They're completely cool with moving on. So your conscience may or may not be accurate. But you still gotta work off of it because if you think it's wrong and you're pressing through it, you're creating your own rebellion. And then he said, well, I wanna be clear. I'm not trying to step into legalism. I'm not interested in living my life to the lowest common denominator of all my friends. If we did that, we worried about everybody's triggers and everybody's baggage, we wouldn't do anything. He said, listen, I'm not interested in trying to satisfy everybody. Here's what I'm concerned about. Am I making it easier or harder for them to get to Jesus? If I'm creating obstacles, if I'm creating barriers, if I'm creating hurdles, that's on me. I shouldn't do that. My job is to pave the cleanest, smoothest way to Jesus so they can be healed. I don't need to be getting in their way, but I am not going to rule my inner life by your weird conscience. We have freedom, we just morph based on love, yeah? All right, pick it up in verse 31. He said, guys, here's really what I'm trying to say. 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to Christians. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Okay, what is glory? It's kind of one of those weird Christian-y words, yeah? Glory means that which makes you look good, okay? So in my example, when I had six puppy dogs on me, they were my glory. Everyone was like, oh, I wish I was Pastor Lance and I had six puppies. And I was like, I know. <laughs> when other people look over and they see value, that is your glory. Some people have glory in some bad stuff. Some people have glory in some good stuff. We are here on this planet for the glory of God. What it means is everything that comes through us should make him look good. That's actually our whole point of being here. And you're like, well, that, doesn't, that sounds weird. Why did God make a whole bunch of little fangirls and fanboys? Like, what, why does he need all of us to be like, oh my goodness, God, you're so amazing. Why does he, that sounds very arrogant. Hold up. You need to worship God because he is the only source of life. The more important he is in your mind, the greater your life can expand and be healthy. You need to promote God to everyone around you because they need the same health and life that you're getting. So we are built. We have to worship God. We have to glorify God just to survive and thrive. God's not saying, man, I just need you to tell me I'm awesome. God knows he's awesome. You need to know he's awesome. Your neighbors need to know he's awesome. That's why we do it. He's aware of who he is. But what he loves is when it's a connective element and people are caught up in running to him for life and health. That's why. He said, whatever you do, do it for that. And you go, I don't really understand. How can I, everything I do. No, seriously, everything you do. I mean, it's one thing to go, oh, I was a worship leader, I was on stage. During those 35 minutes, I was, I was glorifying God. Yeah, you were. But here's what's interesting. I have 45 minutes on this stage, and I can contain, and I have to step off this stage and ask myself these questions. Lance, were you too self-serving? Lance, did you share the message that God gave you? Lance, are you too this? Are you too that? Lance, was God glorified? I gotta ask all those questions every time I walk off the stage because this is truly his stage, not my stage, right? But 45 minutes a week is nothing compared to all the time in between. So if he's really gonna get glory out of my life and he has to wait for 45 minutes on a weekend, that's messed up. I'm supposed to be continually lifting glory to God in my daytime and my every moment. And so are you. So how do we do that? Everything you do should make God look valuable. It could be as simple as this. Uh, hey, bro, do you want to go to the, uh, go to the Giants game? Well, I don't know. When is it? Well, it's, it's Sunday morning. Yeah, dude, I'm in church. Sorry about that. 
You're, oh, you're a church guy. Okay, sorry, I didn't realize that. Okay, here's what they just heard. God's important enough to me that I'm going to disrupt my plan. That's what they just heard. Glory rises. Hey, I have this guy at work, right? We're both salesmen. I am crushing this dude. I got the trip to Hawaii and all this stuff because he's so caught up in like, well, I don't know if that's ethical and blah, blah, blah. Like, we're not doing anything illegal. It's not that big of a deal. But the more that guy gets hung up, he's one of those Christians, the more that guy gets hung up, I always get the sale. You know what you just heard? God's more important than money. And we could go on and on and on. Is the evidence of your life indicating to other people, including Satan and the demonic, that God matters to you? That's how you glorify in everything you do. Well, you know what? Pastor, I'm actually going through a terrible time. I've been in suffering. I felt miserable. And everything is going wrong. Okay, you want to know how to lift up glory in that moment? Suffer well. You can't fix it. Suffer well. What does that mean? Keep choosing Jesus. When things are horrible, lean into Jesus. Don't lean away from him. Because what that does, it tells the enemy, even if you wreck my life, I still choose him over you. And that's embarrassing. Glory rises. And he finishes with this. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Can you say that? Because there's a couple of reasons why usually we wouldn't. Some of us, because we don't think high enough of ourselves, and we're like, well, I can't really do that. You know? And then there's some of us that can't say that because we don't, honestly don't take our Christianity that seriously. We wouldn't want someone to mimic us because we're not really following the Lord. That would be terrible, by the way. If you're a Christian, you should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Because it's not about you doing perfect. It's wherever you would line up with him, they could see an example. So why would he say, follow me? Why wouldn't he just say, follow Christ? Because when you say, follow Christ, but you don't know Christ physically, humanly, personally, it's very theoretical. He was trying to give them practical proof and tangible evidence, a concrete example. He would say, listen, every time I say be like Jesus, you don't even know how Jesus handled the situation of arguing with a Walmart cashier because there's nothing in the Bible that talked about him arguing with a Walmart cashier. But you do know a Christian that happened to have an argument with a Walmart cashier and as much as they handled it with grace, you knew they were doing what Jesus would do and you went, aha, a role model. It's weird when people follow you as you follow Christ. It's a little nerve-wracking. I get it. But it's practically necessary. I'll share this story with you. I've shared it with you before. Before There was a, uh, a buddy of mine who was two grades under me uh, when I was graduating high school. And he was a sophomore. I was a senior. And then when I graduated, I was in college. He was a junior. And he and I became relatively close. And he knew I was a Christian, and I got a chance to lead him to the Lord. But he was a baby, and he didn't have any other Christians around him. And it was really funny, so he called me up one day, 
and he said, hey, Lance, I think this dude's hitting on my girlfriend. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, I don't know what's right, but I was so mad. And I wanted to go take him out. And I thought, what would Lance do? <laughs> and I thought, how sweet is that? He doesn't know what the Bible says about beating up a guy that is hitting on your girlfriend. He doesn't know how Jesus would have done that. So the closest thing he could see was how did Lance act because he's really into Jesus. And that was his role model. So was that wrong? Should I have said, oh, I'm horrified. I'm not Jesus. Or is it just simply practical of going, good job, dude. Nicely done. How is your life making God look? Right? I mean, like, even your internal life. This is a big argument. Can Satan read our thoughts? I sure hope he can. Why would you say that? Because I've been rebuking him silently for years. And if he can't hear that, I need to now say it out loud in an awkward way. You ever been in J.C. Penney's rebuking Satan? <laughs> you better believe he needs to read your thoughts too, huh? And I got enough freaky thoughts coming into my head that I'm quite certain if he can't read them, he knows how to insert them, right? Is your thought life telling all of the spiritual forces Man, I'm struggling, but Jesus is mine, and I am his. Is your work life, your friend life, your joking life, your serious life, your social life, your social media, right? Is it making Jesus look winsome? Because if you're putting up more barriers for people to get to Jesus, you're out of line. And loving on one person is going to be different than loving on somebody else. And what ministers to one person is different than what ministers to somebody else. You're like, it sounds so complicated. Well, and I guess that's why we always drive back to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's all Christianity. So if you walk into an environment, no matter what the environment is, think, how would Jesus love on the people right now? And it will always lead you the right way. It's not that complicated. Let's close in prayer. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? If you need prayer this morning, extra personal prayer, that's what our prayer team is here for. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we need your surgical precision to help us look inside, God, because we have all kinds of self-condemnation or self-justification. Would you be the one that would Help us excise just the yucky piece without losing all the good stuff. Would you help us to be able to see you in a fresh light? Lord, I just pray for an empowerment and an encouragement to wash over this body, this family, everyone listening to my voice, that God, that you would be the one to say, hey, kiddo, man, what's going on here? That's not how I act. 
I love you, but wow, that's messed up. Lord, would you be that sweetness, that kindness, that patient God that you always are, the beautiful, loving Father that you always are, that walks alongside and says, you know I built you for more, right? Because Lord, when we, when we listen to these messages and we wonder how do you want me to be different, God, sometimes we're all full of defense mechanisms. So I just pray that maybe today you would navigate around the defense mechanisms and actually shine a beautiful light with gentleness that would allow us to say, I can adjust this, I can adjust that, and I won't lose myself, but I'll gain more of the Lord. God, would you do the beautiful heart surgery that we all need that we might be more like you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.